The sermon today comes from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We begin this new sermon series in the Messianic Psalms, which is a collection of psalms that basically previews the, the person and the work of Christ. And it's an appropriate series because we are living here in the United States in what's called the, a post-Christian era. Now, what do I mean by that? By post-Christian, I mean that the, the, the Christian values and ethics that were once a foundation of our culture, say 30 years ago, 40 years ago, are no longer the foundation. And so that creates a lot of challenges, such as if you work for a company that is promoting something uh, that you can't get on board with, but you're feeling pressured to do so. Uh, or if your kids are exposed to things that are not profitable at all through the widespread access that they have to internet and social media and phones, or to the fact that the church has in many ways become irrelevant, insignificant in the community and is continuing to increasingly be so, at least from the world's eyes, or to the redefinition of sexuality and the expectation that you'll accept it. Now, I've just named some things that are in our own country, our own culture, but then you just, you, you look broadly, that's also happening elsewhere, but around the world, just the, uh, the fighting, the nations against nation, um, the, 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 the drama of the nations, the conflict that's going on, genocide that's happening around the globe, uh, the, the exercising of power plays, the threats, all of that, the devaluing of human life. If you look at our world, it is a rebellious world. And I say that, I think all of us, whether you're here and you're in Christ, you're a believer, or whether you're investigating Christianity, we all would agree that this world is, is conflicted, that it's rebellious. Now, that's nothing new. The post-Christian era that we find ourselves in is at least new to us in our generation, you could say. But this has been the case in the history of the world and the history of the church, rebellion. And Psalm 2 acknowledges it and addresses it and answers the question, how do you navigate such a world? How do you navigate a rebellious world? So first, what do I mean by a rebellious world? What are the marks of rebellion that we see evident in our own lives, but in the broader world? 
The first is this. Generally speaking, the world is in opposition towards God. It's not just neutral. Sometimes we think that. that The world is just kind of neutral towards God. That's not the case. The world is in opposition towards God. Look at verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, or against his Messiah, against Jesus Christ. Now, this has been evident through the course of history, but certainly in the early church, when you read of the the church, right after Jesus rose from the dead, he ascends to the right hand of the Father, and then early on in the book of Acts, you see massive resistance and opposition against Christ and against his followers. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, this verse 2, verse 2 of Psalm 2 is quoted, and it's quoted in the context of Peter and John being called in, taken into custody by the authorities, and being told not to preach and teach in the name of Jesus. And when they're released, they quote this psalm. Right? That, that there is, there's rejection, resistance, opposition, not just neutrality, but opposition against Jesus. And we've seen it through the course of history. In fact, the 20th century, there were more Christians that died for their faith in the 20th century than all the previous centuries combined. So you had over a period of six years in the Sudan and Africa in the 20th century, 1.3 million Christians killed. You had approximately 2 million followers of Christ killed in Turkey over a period of 13 years early on in the 20th century. And it continues today. Think about China. China is a nation where recently they've become a lot more open to Christianity, and the church doesn't have to be underground as much and in hiding. There's a lot more openness. That's turned around. China's cracking back down on followers of Christ. There's persecution. Or you think about the Middle East, where in many places it's illegal. It's illegal to profess Christ. And if you do, there's dire consequences. Now, that's opposition you see in the form of just straight persecution. But then you just have the rage of the nations, right? You have just the rage of the nations that are trying to exert power and authority and and find autonomy. And it begs the question, what's, what's behind this opposition? What's the root of it? Where's it coming from? Look at verse one. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Now, two words there. That word rage, it means just disorderly ruckus. And in vain just means empty, with no purpose, right? I love how one commentator rephrases verse one. Nations are making a disorderly ruckus like a gang of thieves, and their raging and talking give birth to nothing. What it means is that the nations are, they're not raging with any design or purpose. They're simply emotionally reacting to God's authority and God's rule. That the opposition comes as a reaction to God's authority and to God's rule. And that kingdoms of this earth are by nature opposed to God and to his rule. And we see this in, in Romans 1.18. We see the, where this comes from just from a a human level, because the nations are made up of people and rulers and kings who have hearts, who are sinful. Romans 1.18 says this, and it speaks to the human condition. 
It says that we suppress the truth, the truth of God. And what that means is that we, by nature, we have this inclination in us to, to react against, to oppose God's truth. That's just in us. Ephesians 2.3 says, by nature, we're children of wrath. That means by nature, we are born we're born with this sinful wiring that wants to reject authority, and specifically God's authority and God's truth, that it's in us, it's inside of us. And we inherit, we inherit this from our first parents who in the garden did what? Rejected God's word, right? Believed the tempter, rejected God's word, set themselves up against God, and we're born inheriting that. That's why it's by nature. You know, I don't think there's any more appropriate illustration than the behavior of a child, a defiant child. A young child, young toddler, when you say no and they fall on the floor and they start kicking and screaming and throwing a temp temper tantrum and yelling at the top of their lungs, you say, why is that happening? Well, I just, I didn't give them that piece of candy. I didn't give them that toy they wanted. Sure, that's the case, but it's deeper than that. There is in them this sinful wiring that says, I will say no to any and all authority, right? And the evidence of that is when a child is born, you don't have to teach them to disobey. You don't have to say, okay, let, let me put you through the school of how you say no, how you defy authority, how you reject authority. Where does that come from? It comes from our first parents. It comes from sin that we inherit by nature. There is this in us, this rejection of authority. In adults, we do the same thing. We've just learned how to pretty it up a little bit. We've learned how to polish it. We've learned how to keep our anger from, you know, falling on the floor at work and, and screaming and yelling. We, we've learned how to, how to make it look politically correct. We've learned how to put lipstick on a pig. We learn how to kind of cover it up, but we all have it. It's the inclination inside of us. It's called sin by nature. Kingdoms of this earth are opposed to God's rule because kingdoms and nations are made up of rulers and kings. You and I, who by nature are opposed to God and opposed to authority and are committed to our autonomy and our independence. So what marks the condition of rebellion? That's the first, is this, this by nature opposition to God and his authority over our lives. But second, it's marked by the empty search for no constraints. Look at verse three. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That word bonds, it can be translated fetters, or that, and that's the, the rope that a, a human being would tie to an animal to constrain an animal to get that animal to serve him. Right, at the core of rebellion, is this desire to throw off all constraints, to search for freedom, and to believe that freedom is the absence of constraints. The problem is, verse one says they do it in vain. That means it's empty. That means that it's not possible to live without constraints. It's empty and it's, uh, it's, it's deceptive to think so. 
that everyone lives by constraints. There's no such thing to not have constraints. You say, well, even the, even the uh, take the, the person that's kind of rage against the machine of corporate America, right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna rage against corporate America. I will not work for corporate America. I will be free. I'm gonna live off the land. I'm gonna go all natural. I'm gonna, I, I, I will not bow the knee to corporate America. You say that, that person, wow, they're really free. No, they're not because they're not free to take a job with corporate America. They're constrained by their own constraints. There is no such thing as no constraints. See, freedom is not the absence of constraints. Freedom is the right constraints. And that leads us into the second point. How do you navigate a rebellious world? First, you have to understand the condition of it. That inside you, your heart has this natural inclination called sin to reject authority, reject God's authority, and to try to throw off the constraints. But second, you have to understand the king who sits enthroned over rebellion. What is God's response to the rebellion of the nations who fight against him and who fight against his son Jesus? You'll see here, it's a twofold response. First, look at verse four. He who sits in the heavens, right, enthroned as king, laughs. He holds them in derision. And what does that mean? That, that, that God laughs at the raging and the plotting of the nations and laughs at the, the rebellion. It means this. He's not undone or threatened by it. He laughs at it. My sophomore year of high school, I was in line to be the starting quarterback on the JV football team that year. And over the summer, we were working out in the weight room, getting prepared for two days in the fall. And this freshman shows up by the name of Jimmy Scaglione. And Jimmy walks into the weight room, we're working out, and he starts talking smack and talking trash to me. He had figured out that well, Keith is the incumbent or whatever, starting QB. And so he starts talking trash that he is gonna be the starting quarterback on the JV football team. Just yapping away. Now, you think I'm skinny now. When I was in a sophomore in high school, I was real thin, and I hadn't hit my growth spurt yet. But Jimmy Scaglione was tinier than me, okay? I mean, he made me look like Vin Diesel. He was tiny, he was a shrimp. And so he would, he would mouth off. And you know what everybody would do? They would laugh. And I would chuckle. It was cute. I wasn't threatened. The one who sits enthroned in the heavens over rebellion is not threatened by the raging and the plotting, and the rebellion of humanity. Now, why? Why is he not threatened? Look at verse six. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, Today I have begotten you. This is God the Father 
speaking to his son on coronation day. This is speaking of Jesus Christ having risen from the dead, having ascended to the right hand of the Father in a place of authority. Now, where does the begotten language come from? Today I have begotten you. Now, that would speak of more birth-type language or eternally being begotten. We're not gonna unpack that because that's not the point here. This is talking about Christ's ascension. The begotten language just simply says this, that Jesus, as the Son of the Father, inherits all the wealth and all the authority of the Father, and that he's put into a place of authority. And in authority, God then gives him a commission. All right, a commission in verse eight. Look at it. Ask of me, the Father says, and I will make the nations your heritage and the end of the earth your possession. That's God saying to his son, the nations will become aware of the fact that they belong to you, my son. And so the commission that he gives Jesus is to make the kingdom of the Father visible here on earth. Now, how does the son accomplish that? Given that commission, son, go make my kingdom that's invisible, make it visible on earth. How does Jesus do that? Well, Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, starting in verse 18, Jesus says what? All authority has been given to me. The Father said, I have set my king on the throne. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. Now go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Jesus fulfills his commission by conferring his authority to his followers to go and make disciples, which is building the church. The central task of the church is to make disciples, and that is how God's kingdom is made visible on this earth, is by Jesus building his church, by making disciples, conferring his authority to his followers. So you see the progression here. The nations rebel, rage and plot. God laughs. God puts his son on the throne, commissions him to make his kingdom visible, and Jesus then builds his church. I mean, think about that. The, the glorious, powerful kingdom of God is made visible through an institution in our world that has become increasingly in their eyes at least, irrelevant and insignificant. You think about it. What, what makes center stage in our world? I mean, what is center stage? What has been center stage in our world? Trade war between the United States and China, right? Jockeying for position. North Korea flexing their muscles with nuclear weapons. Russian interference with the presidential election, power struggles and violence in the Middle East. You know, that, that is what at least makes center stage in the world. Psalm 2 is saying, no, no, what is center stage in the world is the church that Jesus Christ is building through his followers by making disciples. That the church is center stage. It's always been this way, even though the church in many ways in our culture, as it becomes more 
post-Christian, the church has become somewhat of a laughingstock, or at least just super irrelevant, stuck in the past, not progressive, doesn't get it, you know, and just, just kind of cast off. And yet Psalm 2 says, no, no, the church that Jesus is building is center stage. Insignificant in the world's eyes, center stage in God's plan. But this is how it has always been. Old Testament, Israel, which was the Old Testament church, that community that God had built and was working through to be a light to the nations. Israel was always small, always insignificant, always surrounded by great nations that were attacking. And you get to the New Testament. The church in the first century was tiny. It was a minority movement. In the Roman Empire, this most powerful empire in the world, this tiny little church. Yet God says what's insignificant in the world's eyes is center stage in God's plan for the world. You know, the three smallest bones in the human body are what are called the middle ear ossicles. And they're made up of three tiny, tiny bones that are commonly known as the hammer, the anvil, and the stirrup. Do you know that without them, tiny, tiny bones, invisible to the eye, invisible to the outside world. Many of you are going, well, I didn't even realize this. Without them, 0.1% of sound that hits your eardrum would make it to your inner ear. Just tiny little insignificant bones have this sonic effect that is way beyond their size. In a world that is raging and plotting, and making headlines all over the place, the church of Jesus Christ is center stage in God's plan for this world. And what that means for us is that it needs to be center stage for us. The making of disciples, the growing of God's family in a world that is rebellious. And as the church does its work, the nations are becoming the heritage or the inheritance of Christ. And the nations are recognizing that they belong to Jesus, that they are possessed by him, that the kingdom is being made visible. How do you navigate a rebellious world? So first, the opposition, recognizing what rebellion is, this inclination by nature, being opposed to authority, being opposed to God's authority, God answers that by setting his son on the throne and giving him the commission to make his kingdom visible. And he does that through the making of disciples, which is his church. Then finally, navigating rebellion requires submitting to the king. Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. In verse three, the, the kings of the earth, the leaders were, were throwing off all constraints. In verse 10, it's the call to put the constraints back on, to submit to Jesus. Now, what does submission look like? What does it look like? Well, there's two verbs that are used here. Serve, serve the Lord, and then kiss the sun. Now, let's start with serve the Lord. What's that mean? It means that kings and leaders stand in a chain of command in which they're not on top. So you think about our, our world. You think about the nations. You think about presidents and kings and dictators. 
They all stand in a chain of command. None of them are on top, all answering to Jesus. Bring it down to a, a smaller level. You're the CEO of a company. Or maybe you're just managing a group of five people in your company that you don't stand on top that you're in a chain of command. You're probably in certainly a human chain of command, but ultimately you answer to Jesus, that you're accountable to Jesus in whatever place of authority you have been placed, that you really can't lead until you've learned how to follow. I, I say that to my son over and over and over, that you cannot lead until you have learned how to submit until you have learned how to follow, certainly human authority, but ultimately God's authority and the authority that God confers to human beings to be over you, that you have to learn how to submit. You're in a chain of command. Second, kiss the sun. Now, what does this mean? That's kiss the sun is imagery for submission. It's imagery for, for bowing to Jesus. The command there is to submit to Jesus in his ways even if it doesn't profit you in the world's eyes. To submit to Jesus, even if it doesn't lead to worldly success. To submit to Jesus, even if it causes worldly failure or maybe even causes you to go backwards. This is the problem that Israel had in the Old Testament. They wanted the success of the nations. They wanted the power of the nations, but they wanted it with no submission. They wanted, they wanted power, they wanted authority, they wanted su success, but with no submission to God. They wanted to get it the ways that the world had. They wanted to get it the ways that the nations got it. So they asked for kings, they asked for all the things the nations had in an attempt to get that power. Where does this come from? Again, back to our first parents in the garden. Our first parents wanted power, and they wanted authority without submission. You remember the temptation? Eat this fruit and you will be like God. You can have this power. You can have this authority without submitting to God. And that has flowed downhill to today. A couple examples of this in the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 20. Moses is leading the people through the wilderness. They're thirsty. They don't have water. So God says to Moses, Moses, I want you to speak to that rock and water will flow. So Moses strikes the rock two times with his staff and water flows. And what's the consequence of that? God says, because you did that, you don't get to go to the promised land. Now, you read that and go, wow. That doesn't seem like the punishment fits the crime. I mean, is that, what, what's the big deal there? I mean, God, you told me to speak to the rock to get water to flow. I tapped it with my staff twice and water flowed. We got water. What's the big deal? Oh, it's a huge deal. Because at the heart of the sin there and the rebellion was this, Moses committed to doing things his way. He wanted the provision. He wanted the water but without submission to God. Moses said, I want the water and I'm gonna get it my way. I'm gonna beat this rock until the water comes out. I'm not gonna speak to it. See, he wanted God's provision, but not without submission. I'll give you another example. 
2 Samuel 24, King David takes a census of Israel. And because he takes a census, 70,000 people die. God brings wrath on King David's sin. Again, you go, man. I mean, what's the huge deal there? Okay, he took a census. He shouldn't have. Does the, does the punishment really fit the crime? Well, what was happening there? King David wanted power. When you took a census, that's how you drafted soldiers. That's how you levied taxes. And so the kings of all the nations around him, the pagan nations, those kings would take a census. That's how they gathered power. King David was just coming off a huge victory with the Philistine, against the Philistines. I want more power. I'm gonna take a census. Again, again, seeking power, God's power, without submission. Wanting God's power and God's authority without submission. Throughout the scriptures, God reacts strongly to independence. He reacts strongly. I mean, it starts in the garden to this, I want power with no submission. I want success with no submission. I want provision, God's provision with no submission. It started in the garden. And it continues to today that he reacts strongly to this rugged desire for independence. Psalm 2 leaves, no, this is so critical to get. Psalm 2 leaves no room for neutrality. Psalm 2 says that either you are arrogantly asserting your independence from Christ or you are submitting to Christ. There's no middle ground. There's no neutral spot where you're saying, well, take it or leave it. That kind of, that, that is arrogantly asserting your independence. And it has dire consequences. Moses didn't enter the promised land. In David's case, 70,000 people died. And then we read verse 12 in Psalm 2, where the consequences are spelled out. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Now, you read that and go, what does this mean? Does this mean that Jesus is, is just, uh, he's pretty hot-tempered and cranky? And you, you assert your independence and lightning's coming down? Like that? No, actually, Jesus is incredibly patient with you, with us, with this world. The fact that he hasn't returned yet is a mark of his patience. That he's not gonna return. He's gonna delay his return until all of God's people submit and surrender and bow to him. Now, what it does say is that when he does return, that judgment will be quick. That there's, there's no second chances at that point. That the gospels say that the thief it's like a thief coming in the night. That's Jesus' return. We don't know when it's gonna happen. He's delaying. He's showing his patience by delaying, but when he does return, it will be quick, quickly kindled. That's what that means. So what do you do? What do you do when you find yourself arrogantly asserting your independence from Christ? And we do it in a myriad of ways. We do things our way. 
I mean, just to use the analogy again, and think about your life where this would be true. Where do you beat the rock until water comes out? Right? Where do you just, you flex your strength and you say, I, I am going to grab hold of this and I'm going to make this happen. I'm not going to wait on God. I'm not going to do it his way. I'm not going to submit to his way. I want what he promises and I'm just going to go get it. That's what asserting your independence looks like. What do you do when you find yourself in that place? Look at the end of verse 12. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The same Jesus who is a terror for those who arrogantly assert their independence from him is the same Jesus who is a sweet refuge for those who fall into his arms. In 2 Kings 24, after King David takes the census, and he's convicted of his independence, his pride, his self-reliance, his seeking power without submission. He's convicted of it. Listen to what he says in verse 14. I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, into Yahweh, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. You either fall into the hands of a merciful king who took judgment for you, or you fall into your own independence where you incur his wrath. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis, he captures this that we see here in Psalm 2 of this dynamic of Jesus, the one who is a place of sweet refuge, but the one who is also a place of awful wrath. And he captures it in the Aslan, who is the lion, who is the Christ figure in the story. Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I'd thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I'll say it very bluntly. Every person in this room, every person in this world will one day face King Jesus. That you will you will look at King Jesus, who, who has a glorified body at the right hand of the Father right now, and when he comes back, you will look at him face to face. That day is coming. And either, either one of two things is true. You will have fallen into his arms in this life here on this earth. You will have submitted yourself to the great king who took judgment for you by dying on the cross and therefore taking away your sin and taking judgment away from you. Or you will not submit to Jesus and you will face him in, 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 your, in your assertion of independence and incur, incur his wrath. Let's pray.
Oh, Father, we thank you that in a world that is so rebellious and and in our own hearts, we know that rebellion. We thank you that you're not threatened by it. You're not undone by it, that you've done something about it, that you set on the throne your son Jesus as king over it all. And that, Jesus, you're on the throne because you first came and put on flesh and were beaten and mocked and flogged and you bled on a cross. But you didn't stay in the grave. You rose from the dead. You ascended to the right hand of the Father where you're in a position of authority right now and you're coming back. And, Father, we confess our rugged independence. We confess our seeking power, seeking success, seeking provision without submission, doing it our way. As we saw with Moses, beating the rock until water comes out, we all get that. We're guilty of that. Father, would you humble our hearts? Would we say, as King David said, after being convicted of his own independence by taking a census, I'm in great distress that we would be in great distress over our sin, but very quickly in that distress, fall into your arms, Jesus, as you open them wide for us. And that falling into your arms, we would surrender to you, submit to you, and find in this life the right constraints of a good king like you that is seeking our flourishing. Jesus, you are a refuge. And I pray for those here this morning that maybe are investigating Christianity or or trying to figure out what it's all about, who you are. I pray that you would draw them to that place of seeing you and believing you and falling into your arms so that their sins could be washed away and judgment taken for them. Father, as we continue to worship now, would you remind us through our singing of the refuge that you are. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.